With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 179 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a trailblazing Pakistani-born comedian, writer, and actor. A 39-year-old who most people knew over the last few years for his hilarious portrayal of computer programmer Dinesh Shugtai on HBO's acclaimed comedy series Silicon Valley, but who they got to know in a whole different way this past summer following the release of The Big Sick, a dramedy film that he and his wife Emily V. Gordon co-wrote and in which he stars about a crazy time in their life a decade ago. And a film, I might add, that has grossed more than $50 million worldwide and is the second best-reviewed release of 2017 so far, the very funny Kumail Nanjiani. But first, as we do every week, we're going to take a look back at the last week in the race to the Oscars. And for that, this week, I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast the editorial director of The Hollywood Reporter, the big boss, Matt Bellany. Thanks very much for coming in and doing this, Matt. No problem. So we are here at the Toronto International Film Festival, 42nd edition, one of the big three fall film fests, along with Venice and Telluride. So obviously we want to focus on that first. We're talking on Sunday, only four days into this 11-day fest. But usually by this point, the the big guns have already shown their hands. And in past years, that's included a lot of the movies that have gone on to win Best Picture. Have we seen such a movie already this festival? Well, I'll ask you if you've seen it, because I've only seen a certain amount of them. But, you know, one thing that has struck me this year is there isn't that overwhelming buzz for one movie. I mean, if we if we look back to last year, even, I remember walking around and everyone was talking about La La Land. They were talking about Moonlight. There were a couple others that were in the mix as well. A, a lot of people liked Lion. I really yeah. liked Lion when yeah. I saw it here last year. I really liked Arrival when I saw it here last year. But this year, there isn't that, oh, my gosh, you know, this movie is going to go all the way to the Oscars. There's a lot of great films here, mm-hmm. but I'm curious what you think about it. I think you're absolutely right that there there's not one that's pulled away, and that's true of also what we saw at Venice or Telluride. You know, sometimes they will skip Toronto. Basically, between the big three, we haven't seen a dominant movie yet. And in fact, you know, to some extent, the best movies that we have here in Toronto have come from other festivals. I want to just note from Sundance, we have Call Me By Your Name, from Cannes, The Florida Project, from Venice, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and the movie that just won Venice's big prize, The Shape of Water, and then from Telluride, Dark Stower, Battle of the Sexes, and Lady Bird. But of the movies that have premiered here in Toronto, that have had their world premieres here in Toronto, what are the ones that seem to be causing the most commotion in your view? Well, I actually think that some of the movies that have gotten some momentum are more unconventional. Yeah awards movies. The Aaron Sorkin movie, Molly's Game, which I saw, is really a fun comedy, drama, you know, 
pure Aaron Sorkin. This is his directorial debut. I don't know if it will be considered a traditional Oscar-type movie, mm-hmm. But it is Aaron Sorkin. He does have an Oscar for The Social Network. Yes. And I think that, you know, people are de- certainly, Academy members are certainly going to see this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And during the first part of the awards race, sometimes that's all that matters is that people see it. And I think they're going to enjoy it. And, you know, to your point, there's, I guess, on one end of the spectrum here, we've seen unveiled the most traditional sort of Academy-friendly movie like The Current War which is the Weinstein Company's big hope this season. And that's the Edison movie, yes, correct? with yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch as Edison and Michael Shannon as Westinghouse. It It's almost, if you were to sort of design a movie for the Academy, this would seemingly be that. However, you know, it's it's drawn some mixed reviews. And as you've noted in previous conversations that we've had, the Academy that we refer to when we talk about traditional Academy-friendly movies may not really exist anymore, right? Yeah, I mean, this gets to a larger question of what is an Oscar movie, because I think if you had asked most people last August, September, what was going to win Best Picture, most people would have said La La Land, because it had all the traditional elements of a movie that wins Best Picture. It's a big star vehicle, homage to old Hollywood, a musical set in Hollywood— all of the things that people like about Oscar movies in the traditional Academy, and then lo and behold, Moonlight comes and surprises everybody. Right. But I think that the the question everybody's looking at this year is, with all of the additions to the Academy yeah. over the past three years, they have dramatically remade the nature of this awards body. So what does that mean for the movies themselves? And I think we're going to start to see a little bit more non-traditional Academy, quote-unquote, movies make it into the serious elements of the race. Well, and to your point, one-fifth of the entire membership approximately joined within the last year, the last two cycles of inviting people. So, And in the last few years, they have broken outside the box by nominating Arrival, Mad Max Fury Road, movies that it's hard to imagine even a decade ago getting nominated. So this year, a beneficiary of that could be The Shape of Water, which you know, you can't look to a precedent of a water monster romance getting nominated for Best Picture, but that already, you know, it's it's doing well in Venice. It has huge critical support, and it seems to be a crowd pleaser. So, that right. and be- Guillermo del Toro, the filmmaker, yeah. has a history with the Academy, certainly, so. and and primarily below the line with Pan's Labyrinth and stuff. But maybe the new demographics play to his favor, or or some of these others, but. Other movies that have premiered here, just to quickly note, that have been unveiled here at at Toronto, Victoria and Abdul with Judy Dench, The Leisure Seeker, Donald Sutherland, who was just named an honorary Oscar recipient with Helen Mirren, Professor Marston and The Wonder Woman with Rebecca Hall, and then Gaga Five Foot Two, a Netflix documentary that that came here along with Lady Gaga. One that has not gone over especially well, which I, I guess we just have to acknowledge, is our cover boys movie, George Clooney's Suburbicon. What have you heard about that? It's a polarizing movie. Some people love it. Some people don't love it. It's sort of a a mix of the Coen brothers, who originally wrote the script, and George Clooney, who, you know, who adapted it with his writing partner. You know, it's one of those that we'll see if it has ardent fans, because the overall reaction has been somewhat mixed. There are big fans of the film, but there are a lot of people who were kind of confused by the dual storylines. There's a, a racial element of it that some people are turned off by, but Clooney has a big history with the Academy. And people will certainly watch it. So one other thing I want to bring up here, which I know is something you follow much more closely than I do, is the marketplace. We've never had more 
prospective buyers out there, right? Now, including Apple and Facebook on top of the Amazons and Netflixes, on top of the more traditional places. And yet, it seems like we've seen very few deals here at Toronto in the first few days. What's that about? Well, Toronto is never a huge deal marketplace. There's usually a few big splashy plays, usually something that can get a distributor into the Oscar race when they're not already there mm -hmm. that year. We saw that many years ago with The Wrestler, yeah. where Fox Searchlight picked that up out of Venice and Toronto and went on to get Academy attention. We saw that with Slumdog Millionaire, where that film was picked up right in, in advance of the fall festivals and then went on to sweep the Oscars. So usually that's what's going on. And this year we have a, a number of films that are available yeah. for purchase that could put an, a distributor into the awards race. The one that I saw is I, Tanya. Yeah which is the Tanya Harding biopic, not really biopic, <laughs> right. more of a uh, comedic yes. look at the infamous figure skating assault. <laughs> and it's really good. Yeah. And Allison Janney in particular playing Tanya Harding's mother. She's incredible. Um, she's incredible yeah. in the film and could be an instant contender if someone picks up the film. We're For hearing sure. Netflix is interested. Mm. We're hearing a couple of other buyers are interested as well. It would be nice to see that film get a, a big distribution push for later this year. And the other film that I saw is the Louis C.K. movie, mm -hmm. I Love You, Daddy. Yeah. And that is an interesting film. It's available for purchase. And it is a, a sort of an homage to Woody Allen. It's a black and white film about a, a successful TV producer and his 17-year-old daughter who he hasn't really raised to compete in the world. <laughs> and it's got elements of Woody Allen. There's a, you know, there's a bunch of different romances and anxiety in a lot of the characters. But it'll be a difficult sell, I think, to a mainstream audience. I yeah. think Louis C.K.'s fans are going to love it. But it's a sort of raunchier version of Woody Allen. Right. But you never know. And that's yeah. the, the kind of non-traditional awards movie that yeah. someone could put into the race. And, you know, there's a lot of fans of, of Louis C.K. out there. Yeah. And we should just also note one other one that I saw in Telluride. It's also here in Toronto is Scott Cooper's movie Hostiles with Christian Bale, which Right. Generated good critical response. However, I guess the movie itself cost around $55 million. It was independently financed for that massive amount of money. And so I think that may have made the, the selling of it a little bit more complicated because they want to make sure they cover their, their costs. Someone, someone will buy that movie, yeah. though, because it, it has great performances in yeah. it, and it could be an Oscar contender. Yeah. So I think someone will see the, the value there. So other than that, you've been orchestrating what we call our daily editions of the of the magazine here in Toronto during the fest fest dailies. What have been the the other big storylines out of here that we haven't discussed yet? I think the big storyline here is that it is now the Toronto Film Festival is now the must go for awards movies. There are exceptions, of course, but it seems like even if your movie is not premiering in Toronto. You have to have some presence here in order to be considered a contender in the fall race. I mean, I'm looking at movies like Call Me By Your Name, which is not a premiere. Premiered, you know, at Sundance eight months ago, mm -hmm. but they are doing a big push here in screenings and dinners and all that. Yeah. Even a movie like Dunkirk, the right. Christopher Nolan it's film, <laughs> which which has had a nice run over the summer, right. they are sort of relaunching it here at Toronto yeah. with a party and you know a Q and A to 
reposition the film as an awards film, not a $500 million blockbuster. Right, right, right. And I think that's probably a smart move. Netflix is doing the same thing with, with Mudbound, the, the D. Reese yes. film, which premiered in Sundance. So I think what we're seeing now is that, that Toronto is a must-go stop for these awards films if you want to be considered, quote-unquote, in the race. Even though it tends to be front-loaded, we are still awaiting, and I guess we'll have seen by the time this episode airs, Mother with Jennifer Lawrence, and a few others are, are still to come. So a lot to look forward to. Matt Bellany, thanks so much for supporting this podcast from the start and for joining us today. Thank you. And now for Kumail Nanjiani. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Nanjiani and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. What brought about his move when he already was 18 years old from Karachi to Iowa, of all places, and how he adjusted to life as a brown man living in America, particularly after 9-11, how he wound up getting into stand-up comedy, relocating to Chicago and meeting his future wife, Emily, there, how accurately the big sick portrays the crisis that he and Emily endured several months into their relationship, and what the few instances are in which reality and the movie diverged, what shortly thereafter led to his career in comedy starting to build momentum, first with a 2007 comedy special called Unpronounceable, and eventually, come 2014, with Silicon Valley? How and why he and Emily decided to take their most personal story and, together with producer Judd Apatow and eventually director Michael Showalter, share it with the world, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Kamel, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. We always begin with just very basic. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Born and raised in Karachi, Pakistan. I was there till I was 18. My dad was a general practitioner doctor, and now he's a psychiatrist. And my mom is a stay-at-home yeah. housewife. So what was life like growing up there for those first 18 years, and, and what sort of a kid were you? I was very, very shy, very, very quiet. Really, really like an indoors kid. Like I watched, I probably watched a movie every day for like years. What kinds of movies are we talking about? Everything. I mean, you know, I loved like sci-fi, horror, fantasy. My parents wouldn't let me watch horror, but you know, you could sneak it in sometimes. <laughs> so I watched those, but I, I really, really just kind of anything I could watch. So like on on Saturday, I'd go to the store and get like seven movies, and I would be like, "Just what are the what movies?" And this was like a blockbuster. This was like you know in Pakistan they were all bootleg VHSs, right. okay. so it would just be like a guy who had like all these VHSs that had names of different Bollywood movies on them, okay. but there would be a code number. Then he had a file that would be like, "All right, so this code <laughs> number is actually this movie. Right. This is actually this movie." Oh my god! So you just go and you just be like, "What are the new?" Movies and they use the same tape, so they're dubbing over and over and over, so the quality gets really bad. Yeah, so you just go, and there was like a bazaar that was like probably 40 of these, you know, and you sort of had to get in with the guy <laughs> before he would like let you take these movies right. until so, like, I knew that my guy like didn't have Robocop, and another guy had <laughs> Robocop, and I was like, how am I gonna get? Robocop. Right. And I would just go and be like, hey, you have Robocop? He's like, yeah, but it's not for you. <laughs> so I didn't see Robocop till I came to America. That was your rosebud. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, right. great movie. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so now, just to contextualize, though, you were growing up in a pretty religiously conservative family there, right? Shiite 
in a country where Shiites are far outnumbered by Sunnis. Right. And maybe this has something to do with why your folks were not so enthusiastic about you watching certain types of movies or doing other types of things. Yeah, I mean, certainly religion had a big part of what kind of movies I could watch. You know, it was weird. Like, with horror, they wouldn't let me do it because I had nightmares. Ah. I would walk in my sleep. And I couldn't go alone in the dark. Like, I was terrified of the dark. Okay. Didn't help but that my dad told me when I was a kid. He's like, oh, by the way, when you're asleep, genies have a... Uh, in, in our culture, like, yeah. gen- you guys would think of genies as these benevolent things. For us, jinns are, like, scary. <laughs> We like, oh yeah, they have a tea party under your bed, but it's not, it's not scary, it's not a big deal, it's nothing to do with you, but that's the venue, it's under your bed. Oh jeez. So, so they wouldn't let me watch that, but also they wouldn't let me watch anything that had nudity. So I yes. could watch violence, you know. I watched like First Blood and right. Commando and all those. But... And you're watching all this on just video player VHS. Yeah, yeah. I had a VHS player, and I would just watch a movie every day. I know in the summer. I would sort of stay up all night and just like get a bunch of movies yeah. and I'd just like at night at midnight I'd start the first movie. There was this like apple soft like an apple like soda that I really yeah. liked. So I would get a six pack of that <laughs> and I just watched like two or three movies every right. single night all summer. So what happened at eighteen that leads your family to move from Karachi to of all places Iowa? How did what what the heck happened? Well, I moved alone. Oh, you just moved alone. Yeah, I just moved alone. It was for college, you know, and I really didn't have any idea that different parts of America were so different. <laughs> you and thought you were going to Times Square? <laughs> I thought I was. I thought because you only see New York and L.A. in movies right. generally. And so uh, I had no idea that it was going to be like this. I remember I got off the plane at Des Moines and I was like, where are all the buildings? And then I drove to Grinnell, which is 9,000 people. And I was like, where are any buildings? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it it was, you know, I applied to a bunch of like liberal arts colleges and I just sort of looked at the rankings, figured out which ones I had a shot at. I wanted to do liberal arts because I didn't mm-hmm. want, know what I wanted to study. And then mm-hmm. I just went to the highest ranked one I got into. It just happened to be in Iowa. But that in itself is pretty striking that, you know, you say a shy kid and whatever that ends up going across the world to the middle of nowhere for school. Was that your self starting or was that somebody saying you got to go to school in America and get a degree or whatever to be successful. Yeah, that was sort of the plan from my parents. From your parents. If I had said, I don't want to go, I want to stay, they would have been fine with it. But since I was a kid, the plan was, you know, I went to a school where you could, where most of the instruction was in English. Mm -hmm. The plan was since I was a kid that I would go to America, then my younger brother would go to America, and then hopefully my parents would come. So that was the plan since I can remember. And your English was pretty good from the movies? Yeah, pretty good. It, and, you know, it, very colloquial. Yeah. My jaw hurt in the beginning from speaking it all the time because <laughs> your mouth just moves yeah. differently. But, yeah, like, you know, it was shocking when I came to America. All my friends who were American were like, your knowledge of pop culture is so much more vast than ours. <laughs> like, I, And video games. I played, I watched movies. And I played video games, and that's kind of all I did. Like, over the summer, all my friends would come back to school, and their skin would be darker because they'd been out in the sun. (laughs) I would be, like, lighter skin because I just stayed and watching stuff all the time. So, yeah, so I spoke English kind of from that. So I knew, like, the, you know, phrases and the idiosyncratically American way of English. Now, 
stand-up, I gather, is not a part of every culture. I don't know if it was even a, a presence in Pakistan. So how, when you come to America, how did that begin, the idea of stand-up, comedy generally, just wh- what was your introduction to all of that? It was just watching it on TV. Like, so I was in college, and I think it must have been my sophomore year. Actually, no. Early on, I think my friend showed me Eddie Murphy Delirious, okay. which is very, very funny. Doesn't age well in terms of... <laughs> Political correctness. Yes. <laughs> yes. I remember I'd seen it my freshman year, and I was like, this is amazing. And then, like, my my junior year, I hadn't seen it in a while. There was, like, a Thanksgiving and, you know, I stayed at the college and there's like a handful of people that were there and we didn't really know each other. We right. kind of hung out. You become like weird breakfast club friends. <laughs> and we were in the big lounge and I was like, guys, I know the perfect thing to watch. You're going to love it. <laughs> Eddie Murphy Delirious. And we put it on and he starts with like the most homophobic stuff. <laughs> and I was like, we could turn it off. Yeah. I'm not like this. I'm with you guys. So so that and then I really got obsessed with Jerry Seinfeld's HBO special, which I think was late 90s. It was called I'm Telling You for the Last Time, which mm-hmm. was him sort of retiring all mm-hmm. his material. Watched that over and over. And then I would just I would go to my uncles in Florida over all the breaks and I would just I would travel with my VCR and hook it up to their box and record HBO comedy, like wow. all the one night stands yeah, yeah. and Whenever someone was on Letterman, I watched a lot of Conan. That was, mm-hmm. you know, a big reason why I left comedy. So, like, my last couple of years in college, I got, like, really, really obsessed with it. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't get enough. And so, during your senior year, what series of events leads to you? Again, this guy who has said, you know, pretty in a shell in a way for, for a lot of your life. You wind up in front of a mic, in front of a lot of people for 35 minutes set? Yeah. How does how the hell does that happen? Oh, you know, undeserved confidence. <laughs> um, mistakes were made. I just saw a picture of myself performing and from that, and I just like had a weird like flashback. I was wearing this really huge sweater, <laughs> floppy hair. Basically, so my junior year, they started doing this group that I wasn't a part of, started doing an open mic night, like a comedy open mic night, our improv team, which I wasn't in, was like, they were like very popular. They were sort of like rock stars on campus, which sort of, <laughs> these people were such nerds. It speaks to the school I went to because these people were like, you couldn't get into their shows. They were so busy. So some of them started a night at this really tiny coffee shop called Bob's. And like three or four of them did stand up and I went and watched. And I was just like, oh, my God. You could just do this. You could just get up on stage and it was all their first time and they were they were hilarious. And so my friends, I was sort of like, at that point I was sort of like the funny guy, you know, mm-hmm. in my group and my friends were like, you should try it. So I gave myself a few months to write some material and then wrote 35 minutes of it. Really? Yeah. I just was like, I don't know. I just went up on stage and, and I've tried to, I can't find, I can't find that material. Do you think you might have it somewhere? Or somebody film it or anything like that? You know, it might have been filmed. Yeah. Oh, my God. This is valuable stuff. Come on. Well, it's that sort of thing where you want to find it, but you also don't (laughs) want to find it. So, like, part of you is, like, not looking as hard as it could be looking. Oh, my God. Well, so that was senior year. Then you graduate. And let's just reiterate, it seems like you're, based on your degrees, this was not a career path that you were anticipating. You had your degrees in computer science and philosophy, right? Right. And... Now you're going out into the real world. At that point, what did you imagine your future would entail? 
at that point, I did know that I wanted to try and pursue comedy. You I, did it, know. So. I did, yeah. yeah. I, I, Well, it was, you know, it's... It's not like I'm going to be a comedian. It's safer to be like, well, I'll try it and see how it goes in the real world. And it really wasn't. So in the beginning, I was just kind of doing it because I was like, let's just see. Let's just see. It was all very wishy-washy. I moved to Chicago, I know, because I knew that there were a lot of famous comedians from Chicago, Mm -hmm. you know. So I moved to Chicago and I just looked in the newspaper, Chicago Reader, which is like the local, like, cool (laughs) And they had the list of open mics, and I was like, all right, I'm just going to go to these, I guess. So I just started going. And the scene, the stand-up scene in Chicago at that point was, I mean, it's still pretty robust, but it was like pretty robust then, yeah. too. It was not huge, but there was an infrastructure for people to do yeah. open mics and shows. There was like sort of a thing was set up, which is interesting. You know, now when I travel, I'll go to small towns, and mm-hmm. they have that now. Like, really? Yeah, stand-up's become really much more widespread than it used to be. So I just started sort of doing it to be like, let's see where this goes. And I was just kind of on a little bit on autopilot until, you know, five years later when I was like, all right, I got to I gotta like really, you know, throw my hat in the ring. And that's when I moved to New York to be like, let's really try and let's let's see if we can actually you know, make a living off this. Now, for those five years that you were in Chicago, you had a day job? Yes. What was that? I worked at the University of Chicago. Okay. And I did, like, tech support. Yeah. (laughs) You made me say it. Why is that so bad? Well, just because it's very stereotypical. Hey. But I was bad at it. (laughs) Well, how how do we know that? How do we know we were bad at it? Yeah. Because I didn't know what to do. I would be like, have you tried restarting? Well, we are now out of options. I'll call I'll call a guy to come and fix this. Right. I was so bad at it and cared so little about it. I would go sleep in the closet. Like they had a closet that had all the hard drives and stuff. I'd go sleep in there. And like all the time, every single day I'd go sleep in there. And everybody liked me because I was I should have been fired. Right. A lot of the other people <laughs> on the staff were fired because right. they were like dicks. Right. But I was nice and they liked having me around. So they didn't fire me. But they also didn't really like I remember one day I was like moving boxes and stuff and I was just like walking around all day and I was like, I feel lightheaded. What's going on? And I looked down and my hand was bleeding huh. and I'd bled all over my pants. And I was such a non entity that I'd been like around people and no one had mentioned it for like four hours. No one was like, hey, by the way, you're bleeding. <laughs> Go get some orange juice. Oh, my God. Well, so, okay, so that was your day job. And then, what, a few nights a week you do stand-up? Yeah, basically, I would I would do this day job, get home around 7 Go to the gym and then go to a show, like pretty much, almost pretty much every night. I would go to a show. Now, why stand up instead of improv? Because that's also so closely associated with Chicago. Did that just not interest you? No, I would go to improv shows and I had friends who were, but, but you know, I loved stand-up. Mm-hmm. That's how I got into comedy. Like, I I fell in love with stand-up specifically. Mm-hmm. There wasn't really much like, you know, I liked Whose Line Is It Anyway and stuff, mm-hmm. but stand-up was like, and I always, my goal was always, I want to have crafted material. I always, you know, I was like, I'm a writer. I always thought of myself more as a writer, so mm-hmm. I was like, I wanna, I wanna write stuff, mm-hmm. and I wanna work on it, and I wanna get it really, really good, and I wanna present it, 
and then that thing is done and move on to the next thing. So so I always was like a big like rewriter, like with my jokes. I would do a joke and rewrite it, do it again, rewrite it, do it again, rewrite it. So so th- that was the process. That's the process I really enjoy. Now, only because this became a focus of your comedy, I think, at the time and certainly eventually later in The Big Sick, there's a great joke. I have to ask you, how as a brown-skinned American with an accent, how was your life impacted by 9-11? It was interesting. I heard more things, like the thing that happens in the movie is based on a real life. The heckling. Yeah, I got heckled like that a bunch of times. Like, Not Was it go back to ISIS also there? Or was no, that, it was go back to Taliban because, right, you know, days. I had to update yes. the reference. <laughs> yeah, we, we updated the reference. Right. I got called a Taliban motherfucker. So, and the first time it happened, I was so frozen. And it wasn't like the audience was on his side. But with comedy, you really have to sort of be the captain. You have to make people feel safe. And what happened was when they, the guy did that and I didn't take care of it, they felt unsafe and they felt pity, which is not a good look for, no. for comedy. And so it happened a couple more times. And I was like, okay, this is not working. This is not good. I need to come up with a line that I can just say to get this crowd back. And I did. And that's the line that's in the movie. I, I, you know, I, I sort of have a bit of a comeback to it. And so that, that happened, but not all the time. It's probably happened, you know. But just even, let's times. say, off, off the comedy circuit. I mean, just day-to-day life. Yeah. Was, did you feel that it was harder to just be you? I can remember two instances, Mm -hmm. two incidents. One, I was walking on the street and someone said, that's one of them Arab motherfuckers, let's beat his ass. But this was like on Belmont, which is like a very busy street. Like, Mm -hmm. it was fine. It was just like, oh. And then the other one was I was at a like convenience store and the guy behind the counter made some crack about me making sure I never get a pilot's license or something like that. But then there was another guy at the store mm-hmm. shopping who was just a white guy who started yelling at that guy like oh, he good, had my back. Good. And I felt like overall, post 9-11, the patriotism that came out was generally pretty positive. Like I remember Bush, W. Bush, like mm-hmm. made this big plea like, hey, Muslims are our brothers and sisters and all of that. So I really, it, it felt more... It could have been much worse. Mm-hmm. For instance, right now, yes. I think right now things are much scarier than they were then, even though we haven't had a big terrorist attack. Well, we're talking on a day when Trump yeah. has rescinded DACA, which is sort of demonizing people who were born here. It's not even their... They've done absolutely nothing wrong. Yeah. And yeah, it's, I know you, you're a social issue tweeter among other things and i know that's upset you as well yeah it's a tough it's so tough i mean you know the toughest thing is that i really think he's gonna go down Mm -hmm. but what he has created is something we're going to be dealing with for decades i mean there's going to be i mean you know you saw that like basically that white power rally all those people are going to go like, not all of them, but some of them will go into politics. Mm-hmm. And those are the issues on, that they'll run on. Mm-hmm. And I think it is what we see now is, and this is a complicated thing, but I think white people in America became sort of the default mm-hmm. 
And so it sort of became being a white person in America, maybe it was like without an identity kind mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. And I think this, some of this is an attempt to have an identity, you know, like have an origin story. Mm-hmm. Like that's what the, all the heritage, not hate stuff is. Uh, it, it, I understand the impulse that it comes from. It's a human impulse. It's an impulse to feel like you're part of a group and part of a cause. But obviously that impulse can be redirected in very dangerous ways. It's also interesting that like, as people who remember the events leading up to World War II, Mm -hmm. as they're dying away, we're seeing that rhetoric come back. Like it's not that long ago, but you're seeing like the same phrases. It's pretty amazing. It is. Well, we'll come come back to sort of more, you know, what's going on today in in a bit, but I want to go hone in on the real events that are sort of largely what inspired, I guess, the the story of the big sick, which, which you know, there's some liberties that are always going to have to be taken, I guess, for a movie. But let's just, without getting into the movie even at this point, just because it was such a crucial part of your life, 2007, you're still in Chicago, you're performing stand-up and another night of getting heckled, but not for race-related reasons, yes. right? <laughs> yes. Actually, it was the end of 2006. End of 2006. She got sick in 2007. Gotcha. So, yeah, 2006. And the way the way we met was how it happens in the movie, you know? And, yeah, that's when I met Emily. And it was, it was just one of those things where, you know, when I was a kid or when I was a teenager, I was like, the perfect girl will have this, this, this. She'll like horror movies. She'll like this. All the superficial <laughs> things. And then as you grow up, you realize that stuff is not important. What Im- What's important is that you can talk and you have a connection, all this stuff. And then with Emily, it was like all that and the checklist I had as a kid. It was right. like video games and horror movies and sci-fi. Like we're both like, we just love watching movies together. But just to tease it for somebody who still needs to see The Big Sick, let's say, you kind of, I guess, had a... An opening line is, is Karachi in the house, right? Yeah, I said, is Pakistan in the house? Oh, Pakistan, yeah. Yeah, and I sort of said it sarcastically. Right. And then this white girl, <laughs> at the time she had purple hair. It's right. not in the movie. Right. In the movie, you have a streak of green. But this white girl with purple hair was like, woohoo! <laughs> and I said, you're not from Pakistan. We would have noticed you. <laughs> I would have noticed you. And I remember being like, oh, this girl is really cute. Mm-hmm. And so after the show, I looked for her. And she was gone in real life. She left. She was so embarrassed at what she'd done. She left. And I was like, oh, that's too bad. And then a couple of days later, I ran into her somewhere else. And I was like, hey, you're that girl that heckled me. And she was like, <laughs> it's not heckling. I woohooed you. It was supportive. It was exactly right. that conversation. Right. And then I wrote her name in Urdu. That was how I flirted. Wow. And in the movie, she calls me on it. But in real life, worked like a charm. <laughs> and for months... She would like tell her friends like, "Oh, it was so romantic the first time we met," and I had to be like, "Honey, I'm so sorry to tell you, but this was a move." <laughs> and so you pretty immediately began seeing each other, if not formally dating, just going out. Yeah, it was one of those things where we would like be like, we just liked being with each other so much, and we sort of, you know, try to convey this in the movie too, where it's like neither of us was really looking to date, right? Now, for you, why was that? That was because of these family considerations? I think so. It wasn't that I was actively thinking, like, this can't go anywhere because of my family, but I'm sure that was such a big part of it, you know. I was just terrified to, like, have anything get serious. Like, I would date girls, but Mm -hmm. it would always end in a couple months. But I think with Emily, it was scarier just because we got along so well. So it would definitely be like, okay, let's just 
the first time she was like, this has to be a platonic dinner. I was like, platonic dinner, great. <laughs> we had dinner and then, you know, we ended up hooking up. And then right. it was like, all right, all right, all right, no more. All right, can we just, let's just hang out. We'll watch a movie. Nothing's going to happen. And then again, something would happen. And we just kept, remember, I'd throw like dirty laundry on my bed and I'd be like, listen, there's dirty laundry in the bed. Nothing's going to happen. Cut to us making out on dirty laundry. <laughs> so we really resisted it for a long time. And then it just sort of was, I don't even remember if we had the talk or whatever, like we're going to be exclusive, but we just really liked each other. So what was the status of it when I believe it was eight months into all of this? Yes that this whole crazy event that is the center of your movie, the turning point of it, when that happened, you were considered to each other boyfriend and girlfriend? Yes, we were boyfriend and girlfriend, but it's so interesting. On these interview tours, we've discovered that Emily had a very different <laughs> perception of our relationship. I thought, I was like, yeah, we're boyfriend and girlfriend, but I was like, it's not like serious, even though it has been a while. <laughs> And she was like, I thought we were very serious boyfriend <laughs> and girlfriend. Yeah, and so so we were still dating, but we were sort of, you know, how every few months there's a phase in the beginning where you're like, well, is this going to continue? Is this over? So it was sort of, I think there's one at two months. There's another one at around five. So we were at another one of those, mm -hmm. I think, where it was like, I was kind of like, I don't, I don't know if this is a future or what. And we're just sort of in that phase. And then she got really sick. And she was put into a medically induced coma. And I had to sign the paperwork to do it. And people think that that's a thing that's made up for the movie. It's not. It was all on you. It was ex It was how it happens in the movie. The doctor made me sign the document because he was like, it doesn't matter who it is. We just need a signature yeah. on here. So do it. And we can't, we can't save her life if yeah, we don't yeah. do that. So, yeah. And it was one of those things. As soon as she went under in real life. I was like, oh, my God, if she comes out of this, I hope we get married. You know. Now, what was it that happened from when she goes into that coma? It's over a period, I think, of 12 days. What changed in your mind that, that led to that realization that that's what you wanted? I mean, honestly, I had that realization right away. I think, you know, I expend so much energy to trying to keep my feelings out, you know, trying to rationalize things. And that's sort of the journey of my character too mm -hmm. it's like and it's also sort of something i have to work on personally you know i was raised to think that emotions are bad everything the body likes is bad and that the mind the soul is really the essence of a person and so part of my sort of becoming an adult has been to actually try and feel my feelings so mm -hmm. so i think it was just it was like all the unimportant stuff i mean that stuff is important but it just puts everything into perspective immediately. To that point, you were, I guess, right before this happened, you were supposed to be going off to tour with, or I guess, open on the road for Zach Galifianakis. This would have been a very big thing for you yeah. professionally, right? So that got put on hold. You're here with her. She has since joked, I guess, that she went in with a boyfriend and came out with somebody who wanted to get married, essentially. Yeah. So she, she comes out of this, thank God, and now... I know all her stories. Right. I know her parents really well. Which like, you didn't before. No, I didn't before. And I, it's just, you know, I feel like there is that thing that happens where, and we sort of 
we do it in the movie too. It's like you went on this journey on your own. Like I, I wasn't on this journey with you. Yeah, I just like looked at all her childhood photos. I spent a lot of time in her apartment. I hung out with her parents. I noticed that her dad laughs the same way as her. Like you just sort of pick up these little things, you know, and the little mannerisms. And so it really was. I sort of weirdly fell in love with her through her memory and through her parents. That's amazing. Just for the sake of helping people to understand, obviously movies are, you know, get a Vera. It's not a documentary. It's so let me just prompt you about a couple of things I had questions about. So this was in 2007 when all this was happening. You were not driving Uber, I would assume. No. I don't believe Uber existed. No. What were you doing? You were just, it was purely the stand up. And then you were at that point still working at the University of Chicago. That's right. And we made that decision for a long time in the script. University of Chicago was basically a version of that was yeah. my job. But then it's like, well, if she's sick now, I have to like, there has to be seen where I tell my boss I can't come in. And right. then now people are like, well, now there's going to be trouble at work. So it's like another storyline to service. It's smart. So we really decided to just pick something that would just check that box, show the point he is in his life. And only go to it when we really needed to. And the thing we found in the writing of it that was interesting was we sort of had an Uber runner. Like we would always go to me driving somebody in an Uber for jokes because we were like, the movie can get so heavy. Right. You want to have breaks. But we realized like people don't want a break from the story. Mm -hmm. We don't want a break from the story. Mm -hmm. You want to kind of live in it. So we lost a lot more of the Uber stuff. That's we also lost a lot of the stand-up stuff. Okay. Well, was it more like the coming back to Seinfeld where you would just interject, like you'd have a little stand-up mixed in once in a while? Well, we would have just more scenes with my yeah. friends. And again, that was, because this is what it was, if you're going to get, if you want to get like nerdy about yeah. writing, was, so there, the movie basically has four storylines. It's Emily's illness, mm -hmm. relationship between me and my parents. Actually, it's five storylines. Yeah. Relationship between me and her parents, mm -hmm. relationship between me and Emily, and the stand-up. Mm -hmm. And the first four all interact with each other and complicate each other and enrich each other and bump against each other. And then the fifth one, stand-up, really does it. And we didn't really understand that in the writing. It's when we watched the edit, we were like, oh, these four... It's also like when there's a woman fighting for her life, like who gives a shit if you're going to get into the Montreal <laughs> Comedy Festival, you know? Okay, so the other quick follow-ups about just how accurate to, to reality was this. Were your parents truly unaware of this relationship? Yes. Really? 100%. So when did they find out? Pretty similar to in the movie, except in, instead of in person, it was over the phone because they weren't in the same city. Okay. So it was one of those where I was like avoiding my mom's calls I didn't know what to say and then one day I don't remember exactly what it was I'm pretty sure it must have been in the hospital I just answered the phone and I told her and how about the reaction of your parents was there was there a period of worrying that you were really going to be disowned for me definitely yeah. yes but when I told them this is how it's different in the movie in real life my mom was very concerned about Emily immediately is she going to be okay until Emily woke up and then she got really angry. Then she was like, how could you? Literally, when I called my mom to be like, she's awake. She was like, how could you do this to me? <laughs> so that's when it got really bad. Right. But ultimately, what helped was, you know, I mean, I'd seen this with other members of my family. People people get kicked out and it, this is what happens. Mm -hmm. What helped with my parents was my mom had seen how 
distraught I was over Emily's illness. So part of her understood that I, this wasn't something I would just like get over. Right. And we actually in real life ended up getting married three months after the events of the movie. And when I, so when my mom met Emily for the first time, she was already my wife. We like she met after the wedding. Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, we we stood in line at City Hall in okay, Chicago. So it wasn't like she did not go to the wedding because no. she didn't want to didn't no. approve or whatever. No. So I so we stood in line. It was actually really beautiful. It was really fun. Stood in line, got married, had brunch, <laughs> and then came back. And two weeks later, went to see my parents, and that was our way of being like, hey, this is done, you have to accept or not. And then my mom's way of accepting was they sort of planned like a Pakistani wedding with a Muslim ceremony okay. to be like, all right, let's make this official. Because what she understood was that it wasn't Emily's fault. And so she really went out of her way to be like nice and kind to Emily. All her problem was with me, which I think <laughs> is fair. All right. So what is not really addressed in the movie because now it I guess it could be the sequel is how amazingly your lives took off right after that period and with you I think it was literally just a year later maybe not even a year later 2008 you put on this 90 minute one man show in Chicago which was called Unpronounceable got a lot of positive feedback why was it called Unpronounceable and how did that change things for you it was actually in 2007. It, it wasn't was just so Emily came out of the hospital in May. Okay. And I did this show in August. Oh, wow. You know, it's one of those things you look back, you're like, mm, this doesn't change my life. Uh, this crazy event happened, but we're the same people. But when we look back, within three months of us, of Emily coming out of the hospital, we'd both quit our jobs. We'd both gotten married. We both moved to New York. And I'd done this one-man show that was unlike anything. The one-man show was in New York or was it still in Chicago? Chicago. Okay. So, so before you moved to New York. Yeah, we moved to New York in October that year. And I did this show in August. So yeah, I did this. There was a comedy theater in town at that point called Lakeshore Theater. And they were they would bring in, you know, like cool comedians like Dimitri Martin or or Louis C.K. or Zach Alphanakis. So they were sort of doing that. And we would all like sort of do sets that we would get to open for our favorite comedians. It was really exciting. And so the guy was like, the guy who ran it, Chris Ritter, was like, I want to give you a night. I want you to do your own show. The only stipulation is it can't be stand-up. That's what he said to me. And I was like, Okay, I could do 90 minutes of stand-up. He's like, it can't be stand-up. So you could do whatever you How want. How did he even know about you? He'd seen you just on the circuit? Yeah, I was just around. I'd open for, you know, I would ask to open for my favorite comedians. Right. I'd just go watch people. It really was the Chicago stand-up in that time. It really was a community. Like right. People would hang out at shows. All my friends were comedians. So, yeah, so he knew about me, and he said, do it, because I think he maybe sensed, I don't know how he could have, that... All my material was very observational, nothing personal. And so I was like, okay, so there's a lot of stuff in my life that I haven't dealt with. And I think writing a one-man show about it would be a good way to deal with it. And that is exactly how The Big Sick happened, too. It was like right. the stuff that hasn't been processed. Let's write about it. It'll be therapy, and it'll also be be hopefully something good. So I did this show called Unpronounceable. It was 90 minutes. It was sort of about me growing up very religious and then coming to America and all that stuff. And there's a version of the show in the movie, yeah. but in the movie, it's much worse. The show 
you know, it was what it was. It was cheesy, but I'm still proud of it. Yeah. And by, let's come back, though. Why was it called Unpronounceable? Oh, it was called Unpronounceable because that's what, like, when I first landed here, the guy at the airport was like, looked at my name, was like, come come, come oh, That's unpronounceable. <laughs> Not like, I can't pronounce right. that, or how do you pronounce right. that? Unpronounceable. <laughs> but that ultimate... was when you first got to America for the mm-hmm. first time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, in Iowa. But also... It's sort of about all the things and doubts and fears I had that I couldn't really articulate or put a name to because they were too scary. Right. Just about the stuff I believed or didn't believe. So it sort of became about all that unpronounceable stuff yeah. in my own head, the, the stuff I couldn't confront. So the reception of this show leads to what? So I got a manager from that show. So I did this show, and it did really well in Chicago. I did three shows of it, and, you know, it got, like, reviewed in, like, Tribune and Sun-Times and Chicago Magazine and all of that, and it did really well. And so then I got a manager from that, and my manager said, let's do a showcase in L.A. Mm -hmm. And so I came to L.A., and I performed it at, I believe, I.O. West, I Mm -hmm. think is what it Mm -hmm. was. And then I got an agent. So now I had a manager and an agent, and they were like, you got to move, you can't stay here. So I was like, okay, let's go to New York. So I moved to New York, and... Let me stop you. you. You've said in another interview, quote, I moved to New York first and was really apprehensive about moving to L.A. Why were you leaning towards New York rather than L.A.? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I, When I had visited New York to see stand-up, and when I had visited L.A. to see stand-up, I just felt New York stand-up at that time was just so exciting. Mm-hmm. The stand-up scene over there was so like vibrant and people were like trying weird, crazy shit. <laughs> and I would go and I would see these people up on stage doing all this stuff. And it just felt very, very, it was like another world, you know? And it was a little closer to Chicago. Like in mm-hmm. Chicago, I sort of started comedy with, it's crazy the people I started comedy with. There was like TJ Miller yeah. and Hannibal Burris and Pete Holmes and Thomas Middleditch. We all started comedy together. So you, Middleditch, and Miller all knew each other well well before Silicon? Yeah, we've known each other 15 years. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's just completely random that we all ended up on the show together. That's crazy. Yeah. So, so you now are in New York uh-huh. with your new wife. Yes. And figuring out, you know, life there. And meanwhile, it seems like you were doing pretty well because I think by 2009, you'd done a set on The Late Show with David Letterman. You'd had a recurring thing with The Colbert Report. And at some point, I guess around there, you decided, I want to try acting as opposed to comedy as myself. Yeah. So basically, so I I got there and I started, I was doing stand-up and Zach Galifianakis actually helped me get into the cool shows. Okay. And, you know, most people... Most new comedians start comedy in New York, so they're, like, inexperienced. I'd done it for five years in Chicago, so I showed up with more experience and just more material. Mm-hmm. I could do shows week after week and do a, have a completely different set. So I was lucky in that these people recommended me and gave me all these shots. But what happened was I was performing a lot, and I started touring with Stella, which was Michael Showalter, Michael Ian Black, and David Wayne have a three-man thing that they do. So I toured with them, and it was really fun. And then I heard that they had a that Showalter and Black had a TV series on Comedy Central called Michael and Michael Have Issues. And I was like, I want to write for it. So I contacted them through mm-hmm. my agents, and it was like they were like, submit a packet. I did an interview, and they hired me to write for it. So I was like, this is the most exciting thing ever. And that was your first interaction with Showalter. 
No, I toured with them already. But, I mean, how did they come to you or you to them for the tour even? Okay, so just from the local scene, yeah. Showalter and this guy Eugene Merman, who's very funny. So if you want to get into the nitty gritty of it, sure. uh, Eugene Merman used to run a show in New York when I got there called Invite Them Up. That was the coolest alt <laughs> show in the country. Okay. Like in Chicago, we knew of this show. You know, this, mm-hmm. this show is like a TV credit. A month and a half after I got to New York, I got to do that show because Zach and Pete Holmes had recommended me and they were regulars there. And I did. I had a great set because I had a lot more experience. Yeah. And so Eugene and Showalter ran a show in Brooklyn called, oh, it was called Tearing the Veil of Maya. <laughs> and Maya, if you don't know, is the goddess of like holograms, like a fakeness, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. So like tearing the veil of Maya, like right. seeing the truth, you know? Right, right. So I did that show and that's where I, that's where I met Showalter. And then Showalter was touring with Stella and their opener dropped out. So he called me and was like, we're on the road in two days. Do you want to do it or not? I said, of course I do. And so then writing for Michael and Michael, the only writing staff was Showalter Black, me, and Jesse Klein, okay. who then was the showrunner for Amy Sh- Inside Amy Schumer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a genius. And they were like, you know, the way we work is nobody's just a writer. We want people to write and perform and sort of do everything. That's kind of the way we do it. So that's why they were, they were, they like kind of forced us to be in the show. And I started acting in the show and I had such a good time. I was like, oh my God, this is the best. I thought that writing was creative and acting was just saying the words, but doing that, I was like, oh, it's a tremendously creative thing. Do you think you would have ever gotten into acting had that not happened? I don't know. I hadn't ever thought about it. But it was one of those, like, I think I would have. Just because I did love movies and stuff so much. But just really, like, the first day of acting, just being on that set, being like, oh, my God, this is so fun. And you (laughs) do it differently each time. I just fell in love with it. And so then when Michael and Michael got canceled, which was really heartbreaking for me, Mm -hmm, (laughs) even mm -hmm. though I was barely a part Mm -hmm. of it, I was like, all right, I want to try the acting thing. So I did the pilot season thing in LA and ended up on a show on TNT. And what was that show, the TNT show that you're referring to? It was called Franklin and Bash. Okay. And it was Mark Paul Gossler and Breck and Meyer. Yeah. And I was like one of their, uh, I like lived in their house and yeah. worked with them. And that, how long did that last? They did four seasons. I did three. After three seasons of that, I sort of asked the creators, I was like, you know, I love this show. But I want to be on a comedy. Like yeah. I want to be on like a half-hour comedy. So after season two, I was like, "Is it? would you guys let me out of the contract so I can be on something that I really, really feel like I want to be on? And they said, sure, just do one more season, but you, you can like go and audition for stuff during the season. So that's when I auditioned for Silicon Valley. Wow. And pre-Silicon Valley, though, with the other auditions that you were doing at the same time or even maybe at the period that led to the pilot season that led to Franklin and Bash, you have said that you, I guess, ran into a fair number of requests to play stereotypical kind of characters or, or characters with stereotypical attributes. Can you share what the field of options looked like at that time and also if there were any rules that you imposed upon yourself as far as what you were or were not comfortable pursuing yeah at that time i sort of i was seeing a lot of roles that were basically like people swearing wrong and you know like not saying english right and the joke being that these silly foreigners can't speak english properly and so it was it was very tricky for me because i hadn't had that much experience i didn't have that many options but also i didn't 
I knew I didn't want to do that. So I sort of made this rule at the time for myself and that I wouldn't like change my accent for it. Since then, I've amended it because I'm like, you know, it sort of depends on the role. As mm -hmm. long as the joke isn't the accent. Right. You know, I, I auditioned for a couple parts later that I didn't end up getting where I did make my accent like someone who still lived in Pakistan because I do, I thought that that's what the role required, you know. So that was sort of the rule I made. And I remember there was one audition I was doing. I won't name the movie. But I was doing this audition and I was like, what am I doing? This is, it was all like broken English bullshit. And I was like, I can't. I cannot deal with this. So I decided I wouldn't audition for those wow. anymore. The first time I saw a script, and I didn't do pilot season, I auditioned for one show, was Community. Oh, wow. And I, I read for Abed, and I tested for it, and I was like one of the last three people. And I was like, this is really, really cool. This is a part that I haven't seen people of my ethnicity play. And I really wanted it, but definitely the right guy got it. Danny's so, so good in that role, but... That was the first time I'd read a part that I was like, this is someone whose ethnicity isn't ignored, but it's not the totality of their personality. Or the focus of mockery yeah. or whatever. So Dinesh took that. How did that come about, even the audition? What was the first awareness that this guy existed? So obviously I was a huge Mike Judge fan. Yeah. I'd seen Office Space maybe 30 or 40 times. Right. I loved Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> loved it. You know, we got, we started getting MTV in Pakistan while I was still there. And people in Butthead, I was like, I've never seen anything like this. <laughs> they're assholes and they're losers. You don't see that. You usually see like the assholes are the cool people right. and the losers are like nice. Right. But you don't see someone no. who's like an asshole and a loser. I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> and so I just, my, my, as soon as I talked to Franklin and Bash, they were like, hey, there's a show Mike Judge is doing for HBO. And I was like, what? <laughs> you got to get me an audition for this. So I'd heard this in December and the audition was like end of January. So I had a month to really over prepare and overthink everything. <laughs> and I just went in and I auditioned to play two parts, Ehrlich and Big Head. Really? And then the audition went really well. I was just like, I just want to meet Mike. I'm such a fan. Yeah, yeah. And so afterwards they called and they were like, you know, we don't think you're right for any of those, but we want to write write a part for you because we really like you. Wow. And I was like, you know, people say that it never happens. <laughs> and so I was out of town and they were like, hey, they want you to test for this part they wrote. And I was like, I'm out of town. I can't. And then I was on the plane. I got back and I checked my phone and I had a message from like, on the phone was like all my, you know, the agents that you yeah, like yeah. that sign you, but you never see because they're too high up. <laughs> all of them were on the phone. And I was like, OK, what is this? Right. And they said that they well, helped me was I'd done a little part on Veep the year before. So HBO was had seen me right. and were aware of me. So they felt like I didn't need a test for it. But me and Martin Starr both were added to the pilot later because they liked our audition. That's awesome. So you have said that in, in a way, Dinesh is like George Costanza. Yes. And I wonder if you could explain just what you mean by that and just what it is that as you began playing him and maybe talking about him with Mike, just how you figured out what makes this guy tick. I think he's like George Costanza in the sense that he has a lot of enthusiasm, but not a lot of self-awareness. I mean, he has self-awareness in the, in the way that he knows he's a loser <laughs> in the same way that George Costanza does, but they're right. always trying to get out of that. Right. They're always reaching beyond their reach. And, you know, for me, it comes from, if I think of this guy as someone who is an immigrant who came here, he definitely, you know, the American dream to him is success, 
like work success at work mm-hmm. you know he really wants to prove that like he came to this country and he can like conquer it and he also is a nerd and we figured out that he's a guy who really wants to be cool mm-hmm. but the cash 22 there is you're only cool if you don't want to be cool. <laughs> you, wanting to be cool is the least cool right. thing there is. Right. So he's like a guy who desperately wants to be cool and hence can never be cool. And he just, he's smart in certain ways and he just really doesn't think that far ahead. In a way, you know, if you think of our whole group as a family, I'm the kid. He's very impulsive, mm-hmm. driven by wonder, but also fear mm-hmm. uh, and also self-interest. And also, is it fair to assume, I'm trying to remember if there's any reason why this wouldn't be the case, but as far as we can tell, he's not only not good with girls, but maybe a 30-something-year-old virgin. Is that fair to well, say? Well, I would say he has now, if you watch the newest yes, season, yes. Mia. Yes, yes, yes. I think they've gone all the <laughs> they've way. They've gone all the <laughs> let's, let's hope so for I them. think his story was, I don't think he was a virgin, but he'd like had sex a couple times, and it had been a while. <laughs> like, I think his virginity had grown back. Right. <laughs> like an ear piercing, though he haven't put yeah, an earring through. <laughs> yeah, it's closed up. <laughs> okay, so just for the record, bringing us back to the big sick, Silicon Valley is now, so it went on in 2014, 15, 16, so this was season four. Yeah, and we're about to go to five now. About to go to five. I think every one of the seasons, I believe, has been nominated for Best Comedy Series at the Emmys, including this one. So you guys are going in September 17th, going in there. Could could be the year, but you know, <laughs> one could hope. <laughs> I think we both know why you're gonna see you what think, the reality of this is. Why you think Veep? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I would love for us to win, and I am very happy to lose to Veep. Yes, I yes. love that show. Yeah, I mean, I you know. Well, so you were you on Veep the year that that one as well? Of course not. That was the year before. <laughs> no, I had to leave for it to reach its height. So, but okay, so that show's obviously done great. You've popped up in all kinds of other things, in, including I think probably the most classic episode of Inside Amy Schumer, the the Twelve Angry Men Inside Amy Schumer episode, the satirizing the Twelve Angry Men movie. But so all this is going on. But even before any of this, it sounds like the first seeds of the big sick were planted, right? It was before even Silicon Valley. So the comedy world knew who you were, but the larger world didn't really at that point. So what was the what was the very beginning of thinking, we've had this, me and my wife have been through this horrible ordeal, we came through it, now let's turn it into art. I think for me, I try, and this is going to sound horribly pretentious, and the comedian in me is going to gag, but... <laughs> I find, even with stand-up or The Big Sick or The One Man Show, I find it's best for me to write something, write from a place of something that's consuming me, that I haven't processed, that I'm feeling, that I really need to deal with with myself. Mm -hmm. And it's best for me. It's an act of self-therapy, but I think it's also how I do best writing, my best work is if there's something like that. So I knew with the big sick it was something I needed. To, I, I wanted to do it because this big crazy thing had happened. And thinking about it was paralyzing to me. Like I couldn't handle it. And so I knew that at some point this would be the first, like I knew this would be the first movie I would write. Mm-hmm. And at that point, Emily didn't want to write it. And what happened was it had been five years since the events of this and I met Judd Apatow. This is at South by Southwest? Yeah. And he was like, you know, we liked hanging out. And he was like, "Um, do you have any ideas? Do you have anything you want to work on? So I told him this. 
And he really liked it. And he was like, go prepare a pitch and then pitch it to me, which I think was his way of being like, is this guy was someone who's actually going to put in the work, right, you know? Right. And so I did a pitch that was pretty fleshed out pitch. Was and, Emily aware that you were doing this? Yeah. She was. Yeah, I told her I was doing it. And they liked the pitch. It was Judd and Barry Metal, one of the, the other producer in the movie. And we just started working on it. And, you know, Judd was like, the first draft should be, don't worry about structure. Don't worry about anything. Just go write it as emotionally as you can. Just write the truth. As, just don't worry about anything. And so I wrote like a 160-page thing. Wow. And I had Emily read it. And she was like telling me stuff. She was giving me notes on it. There were more than notes. There was a different perspective on mm -hmm. this. And I was like, Emily, I think we have to write this together. Mm -hmm. Like, I really, really think I this it's going to be so incomplete if it's only me. And so she was like, let me think about it. And so she, she sort of took a couple of days and was like, all right, let's. It's, it's very challenging. We're writing about something very personal to us, but mm -hmm. we're also writing together as a married couple. Well, I want to ask you also how that works, because are you basically sitting next to each other now writing or are you trading off? Are you writing different sections or how, how does that work? Yeah, we, would, we wouldn't generally sit together and write unless right at the end when we were just polishing the script yeah. right into production, we would sit at the same like screen. We would sort of, you know, we would work on the outline together, put up notes on the board together. And then for the scenes themselves, we would divvy it up. So we would be like, we would look at all the scenes and I would be like, I want to do this one, this one, this one. She would say, I want to do this one, this one, this one. We would go off right on our own send it to each other, rewrite each other's stuff, send it again, rewrite it again, and then sort of approve it before we send it to Judd, Barry, and eventually Mike, the director. Mm -hmm. So that's generally how the process worked, was both of us writing separately and sending it to each other. And Judd, along the way, made it clear that he would be a producer of this, yeah. and that the other thing it sounds like is he had enough faith in you, even though, again, at this point, most people didn't know of you or what you were yeah. capable of, you're going to play the lead. Yeah, I mean, you know, Judd was sort of like Mike back then where he was like, I want to work with people who write and and act and sort of do everything, you know. And if you see all the people he's worked with, like Seth Rogen mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. Jason Segel, Amy yep. Schumer, they all sort of do that. So Judd comes from that school where it's like sort of do everything. And Zoe Kazan, who eventually plays Emily in the movie, she said of how seriously you took the preparation, quote, he prepared as if he was Daniel Day-Lewis prepping for My Left Foot. I even said... Quote, I don't know that you need to prepare this much. You've lived it, close quote. So what are we talking about? What level of thrusting yourself into this uh, took place? Well, for me, it was, this is this movie really is, you know, it's about, this is going to sound, but it is truly about the characters. Yeah. If you look at the plot of this movie, there's not much gen, like the plot is all driven by the characters, yeah. really. And my character changes a lot over the course of the movie. So the work I did was sort of looking at it and seeing a guy who is closed off and heady to a guy who's more open and his head and his heart are sort of not at odds with each other. It's sort of becoming, sort of synthesizing all the different lives that he has mm -hmm. into one. So I knew that, you know, it was, it was, this was going to have to be a person who felt different at the beginning of the movie than he does at the end of the mm -hmm. movie. Like, when you see him walk and talk, it's a different person. So I basically, my work was I went through every scene and, you know, found like, okay, here's a little step he took to be a more of a grown-up. Here's a little step he took. And just very, very little stuff. Like, for instance, there's a scene right after 
the doctors say that Emily needs surgery and I haven't really spent any time with her parents. And then I give them a ride home and I'm carrying their bags up the steps, mm-hmm. which is nothing. But to me, I was like, oh, that's a little step. He's carrying her parents' mm-hmm. bags. So that's a little more because he's been very self-involved. This is him helping someone else. It's a very small thing, you know? So it was all like, or like when I sort of revealed to Holly's character that I think I might have messed up with Emily. That That's a huge mm-hmm. step for this character. Mm-hmm. So just sort of finding out the little steps, and I forget how many of them there were, because you shoot out of order. Yeah, yeah. And just for me, that was the work. That was the technical work. But it was it was really fun to do, too. Like, sort of calibrating my relationship to every character separately and how it changes over the course of the movie. And most importantly, how my relationship to myself changes over the course of the movie, uh, how the relationship to my own emotions changes. Because, as I said, one of the challenges for me as a grown-up has been to sort of actually be in touch with my emotions Mm -hmm. and feel them. I think guys are sort of taught that anger is the only acceptable emotion, right? So there's a scene where I sort of break down and I sort of feel everything all at once and it's too much. And then sort of taking those feelings and trying to synthesize them into the person I am. So that was sort of, as Zoe said, <laughs> like Daniel Day-Lewis right. in my left foot, I put, I really, really, because no. I knew I had one shot at this. Well, we I was so impressed, though, because I was reading some of the stuff that, and maybe, you know, correct me if this is wrong, but just you started taking acting classes for the first time. Yeah. You started kind of studying monologues from other movies about people in comas, <laughs> which is a kind of interesting way to get in that headspace. Awakenings, yeah. Fisher King. <laughs> You're now part of the genre. So. Yes, <laughs> I am. Okay, so with our last five minutes here, I'm just going to ask you about some of the some of the really funny stuff here that, that comes up. I had tweeted to you, and you were nice enough to respond, that I think that I have not laughed <laughs> as hard at a scene in a movie as I did at your... How do we say this without giving it away? The 9-11. 9-11 exchange. Yeah. I think since like 19, 20 years earlier with the zipper and something about Mary. This yeah. is, and by the way, everywhere you go, this is the, people are, are the theater just explodes. You could be standing outside the theater and you know when that m- moment happens. So that one, when it was written, when you were doing it, were you confident it would get that kind of reaction or were you concerned there might be some backfiring? I don't want to throw them under the bus, but I will say I thought that joke was so funny. And (laughs) Emily and Mike, and they both admit it, we're against it. They've been (laughs) more right than wrong with this. Emily has been way more right Right. than wrong, but this is one where she was like, all right. I just thought that that joke was so funny. It's the best. (laughs) And it's a joke. And the reason it works is, you know, I've worked a lot with Alec Berg, who's a showrunner for Silicon Valley. And I think about this all the time. He told me about the Price is Right theory of comedy, which is you can go up to a certain line with a joke, but if you go above that line, the reality breaks and everything falls apart. (laughs) The reason that that joke works is he's a comedian. They're in a very tense situation. They ask him an inappropriate question, and he answers in the most inappropriate way possible. <laughs> so it sort of makes sense with the situation, and there's a lot of tension. In fact, there was a very funny scene before it that we cut because he wanted to keep the tension, tension going just to service that joke. And after that joke, we had to add 40 seconds of me fumfering <laughs> just so that people could understand the dialogue because the first time we tested it, the laughs were so big because it's sort of a real tonal shift yeah, right after yeah, that. The yeah. next scene is like a sort of whiplash, which is right. what you wanted. But people were laughing over 
very important, very heavy <laughs> plot points. So we had to like add. I wondered about that because I, I thought, you know, people would lose something there otherwise. Okay, so the movie, though, goes to the 2017 Sundance Film Festival, sells to Amazon for $12 million, one of the biggest sales in the festival's history. We should note that just a year earlier, Manchester by the Sea sold for $2 million less. This is a movie that goes on to get a Best Picture nomination, win two Oscars, all of that. Yeah. Now it opens nationwide on July 14th, 2017, which had some significance for you anyway, right? Yeah, it went wide on July 14th, and that was our, <laughs> Emily and I, it was our 10th wedding anniversary. Was that, like, coordinated or just you No. Know, <laughs> it was totally random. They just, you know, they would send us, like, graphics for, like, we knew that that was the date, but we hadn't thought about it, but we would just get, like, graphics that were, like, you know, July 14th, wide yeah. everywhere, and so we'd gotten the newest one, and Emily was, like, looking at it, and she was like, hey, what's weird about this? <laughs> and I looked, and we'd known the date forever. And I looked, and I was like, "Oh my god, that's our ten- That's the day we walked into City Hall and just like got married." That's crazy. Crazy. So the so movie rolls out starting July fourteenth, or at least that was the nationwide. I guess it had been yeah. platforming up to that point. Yeah. Ninety eight percent on RottenTomatoes dot com. Still the best reviewed movie of twenty seventeen, I believe. Did very well at the box office. I for- think Get Out might be ninety nine. Fuck them. <laughs> no, no, it's I great. It's know. a great movie too. No, it's no, no, it's great. great. No, it's amazing. <laughs> no, but I mean, what did you make? What have you made of all of this? I mean, to have made this little movie so personal, exposing your most vulnerable moment of your lives, and to have it be received in this way. I mean, you know, it's we always, for me, whenever I'm writing, I you can't try and guess the audience's reaction. All you can do is make something that you like and hope that the audience connects to it. That Because that's the only gauge you have. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a problem with a lot of these like big studio movies. They're trying to guess what the audience wants, and you can never do that. No. All you can do is make something that you would like. So Emily and I and Mike and Judd and Barry, we, we all, and you know, Ray and Holly and Zoe, we were all very, it was very collaborative. We made something that we were very proud of, and we were like, this is, we really, really like this movie we made. And Emily was, like, not nervous going into Sundance. I was so nervous. I was like, why are you not nervous? And she's like, because I like the movie. Who cares what other people think, you know? But it's been really, really, obviously, I I can't even wrap my head around how well-received it was. It's been very exciting and hearing from people saying that they've had experiences similar to this, you know, because people, there are, this older Indian couple came up to me and said, now I understand what my son was going through a little more. And to me, that was very lovely. A lot of people who've been in hospitals or have had loved ones in hospitals have connected with it, immigrants, immigrants, kids. So it's been really, it's been really amazing. And last question is just, what is your outlook at this point? You have now been one of the very few brown-skinned people to be a lead in a movie ever, (laughs) in in a Hollywood or, you know, American movie. You have said that, Looking around you over the last few years, people are are less commonly mistaking you for one of the few other brown skin. Although, yes, two days ago, I went to see Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and this kid came up to me and was like, Big Bang Theory. (laughs) He said, I know you're from Big Bang Theory. And I was like, you know what sucks is that now I think they know who I am for one more word. (laughs) The word big. I think now that they know me. (laughs) I'm like on the hook for like another second now. But I loved your perspective in, in one other interview, which was that, you know, I guess at the beginning it was always Cal Penn, right? Yes. That's who you would always definitely. get. So what's changed? 
now there's a lot more people that they can confuse me for. <laughs> but I think, you know, with the with more and more brown people in pop culture, I think that people stop thinking of us as the brown guy, you right. know? And so we are always talked about together, and that's okay, you know, because it is... It's interesting that it's kind of happening at the same time. There's a bunch of different, like, South Asian, people of South Asian backgrounds doing, you know, writing and performing and stuff. I'm such a fan of all of them. It's great that there are, there are more. So I, I still get confused. Like, you know, every every couple months I'll be like, oh, yeah, I've arrived. I don't get confused. And someone will be like, loved you on The Daily Show. I'm like, that's <laughs> oh Hassan Minhaj. Oh yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I really, really am such a fan of all of their work, and um, you know, I'm I'm good friends with Riz, and we're, we we talk, and we're trying to come up with something to do together, and you know, Mindy's amazing, and it's it's really exciting. Well, keep up the great work, and I cannot imagine that it will be much longer before people get their get their name straight and I uh, hope recognize. So. <laughs> I just started like it's been like such a long journey for this movie. Right. I just started working on my next thing oh. a little a few days ago and it's like that exciting period where you're yeah. like this could be anything it, the possibilities <laughs> are endless so awesome yeah well, can't excited. wait thank you very much thank Appreciate you it. with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.